This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, how are Canadian farmers surviving with skyrocketing fertilizer prices? Joshua Nozielski, assistant professor at University of Guelph, shares why fertilizer and farming essentials are so expensive and where fertilizer really comes from, how broad varieties it is, and some of the secrets to the success of fertilizer companies and how important it can be to our food supply. The millennial on the radio, Ryan O'Donnell, shares us how to spot a scam when you're looking for product reviews and shop online good advice for everybody because we all want to know i mean is it a piece of junk or is it going to be worth our money and are you okay with on the shift burger king is one of the topics we've also got cargo planes in there too because why not shane likes to nerd out about planes and i'm speaking in the third person and that just got weird this is the shift podcast are you okay with Oh, cargo planes. I love cargo planes. They're usually right? big and old and loud, and they're mm-hmm. rotten old things, but they're huge. So did you, when you worked for WestJet, did you ever load a cargo plane or like no. WestJet, work on one? Uh, WestJet's cargo was flown um, just in the, on the normal retail or commercial flights. And so there was lots of cargo, but when I did do that, there was um, lots of, uh, you know, fish and flowers and things like that were flown in the cargo, which was cool. And, um, which is amazing, by the way, when you fly, uh, give a wave to those ramp crew folks. They're working very hard to get your stuff done. I can tell you that. Um, but I do know this if I'm, I'm, uh, uh, not because I work there, because I haven't worked there in a long time, but I, I do know this that with uh, some of the aviation, um, plane spotters groups online. I follow a couple of them. And these are groups of people who take pictures of planes and videos of planes. And it's amazing photography. They're fans of everything. They monitor all the planes that are flying into all the airports all the time to try to get photos of them. It's so cool. There is a WestJet cargo plane that has been spotted around the world now. It says WestJet cargo on the side as a converted hmm. plane. So if you go searching on some of the plane spotter sites, you will see that their growth into that is um is a thing it's happening it's cool that's neat yeah mm. they're big those but they use uh i think they're just using a 737 800 but they um some of those cargo planes are huge like amazon's planes are 767s and stuff they're enormous is that the one that um, opens from the nose those no. those planes blow my mind the fact that it's just where they fly the plane just oh, those are like the up. big belugas and the antonov <laughs> yeah. and some of those old ones yeah though those ones are big 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 but I mean, just normal cargo even is huge. Like those FedEx planes are huge. They're those those big ones that fly for DHL and stuff like that. They're just massive. It's cool. It's such a neat world to be a part of. I I love it. Like I could be. I would be perfectly happy working that job all day every day around airplanes. I that just I would be tickled. It would be the best thing ever, as far as I'm concerned. I love it. So. I love it. Cool. I'm like a kid. That's like your Lego is me and airplanes. Yeah. Really. I like building airplanes out of Lego. So there you go. One and the same. There you go. See? Okay, BK. What is, we've all shared here. What, what would be yours? What would be your childhood boyish thing that you would still love that you? Oh, I don't. Can't say 80s new wave. No, because I didn't like that as a child. Like as a child, I was really into chips and, uh, race cars and things but i'm not into those anymore i don't know if i've really held anything from childhood to be honest (laughs) (laughs) to be brutally honest i don't think i have it actually seems quite appropriate to be honest you want to attract though 
Would I have an awakening if I went to a track? No, I've, like I've gone to I've gone to tracks. <laughs> didn't really have the awakening. I just wow. I would think like, oh, when I was a kid, I would want to see a crash. And now, as an right. adult, I don't because I don't want to see anyone get hurt. <laughs> when you're a kid, you thought it was cool, and now you're like, they turn left a lot. Yeah, it's like they turn left, and they're loud, and they're they're technologically not actually that great of race cars. I mean, Formula One's a lot cooler. <laughs> yeah. So I don't there know. There you go. There you go. All right. But it is what it is. Are you okay with cargo planes? They're very, very big, and yet somehow they can do amazing things like this. Dramatic moments at an airport in Costa Rica. Check this out. The frightening incident all caught on camera. That's a DHL cargo jet. It slides off the runway just after it landed at San Jose's International Airport. Then the plane breaks in half. Thankfully, the two pilots on board were able to escape uninjured an investigation into the cause of that accident is underway that's from the today show luis miranda deputy director of civil aviation for costa rica said the plane had gone only about 35 miles from the airport when it requested permission to turn back from its planned flight to guatemala city he said the pilot and co-pilot were only crew members on board which was carrying about two hours worth of fuel um can you describe what that was like it just kind of landed and it just slipped off right it's like okay so the plane lands and then it kind of does a turn like almost like a drift and then it drifts off the runway and there's a dip and as soon as it goes into the dip it stops and splits in half like the plane wow. uh, depresses right in the middle as if somebody stepped on it and it breaks in half wow, i've never really seen meant a plane hit like that bent that way no they're not they're not at all it's just it, and the, the the videos you can watch it happen it's pretty amazing hmm into objective and everybody's okay except for the right. plane except for the plane and maybe the package um we should let's post it shifthead.ca we'll get the link up yes. there so everyone can see it as well all right um let's start this new one here for are you okay with with um a little something with no explanation if people really like the taste of fried burgers, how come there are backyard frying pans instead of backyard barbecues? Think about it. Over a juicy flame broil whopper. We do it like you do it, but we do it like we do it at Burger King. You know, that's actually pretty good when you think about it. It's not bad. Do you think they would stick yeah, to that? The slogan is a yeah. mouthful. We do it, it like is a you mouthful. do it when we do it. You do it, like and then we did it, and then you did that, and then we did. You know, like no, it's just too much. We do like, it like you. Like, we do like, it like repeat me. that. <laughs> you we can't do it like you do it when you do it like Burger King. No, I don't I even right. think that was it. <sighs> but I already the, forgot it. But they're right though. I mean, everyone grills in the backyard. Nobody actually fries their burger on a frying like a fryer, right? So mm -hmm. it's a pretty good point. I think it's valid. I. So let's get started here. Are you okay with Burger King? Yeah. Yeah, I like Burger King. I don't go there often, but uh, Whopper with cheese is is good. And you can taste the difference in like that frame, flame broiled, like the barbecue style. You can you can taste that or the the fried burger. Um, it is awful. It like it's so hard on me. Like, oh god, if I eat a Burger King meal, like I'm out for the day. I feel terrible. But God, they're good. Is that worth it? Like, is it worth yes. it to lose your whole day? Well, yes. Me and my friends call it curbing because okay. it, it's just because it, it's backwards. It's it's mm. terrible. Ah. But it is a treat every now and then. I think if Burger King could figure out fries, like Wendy's and McDonald's has. 
that's how they win the battle because the burgers are great. Yeah, the Same thing with Harvey's. Right. Harvey's burgers are amazing. And yet the fries, it's all in the fries, man. Like you got to make the fries work. Arby's curly fries really were the best. I don't know why that didn't stick. Yeah. Spicy curly fries. So good. All this fried food is making Brennan cross-eyed here. You okay? Yeah, no, I'm good. It's been, it's I, again, thinking of things that I've let go since childhood. One of them is fast food. I can't think I've had Burger King since I've been a child. Um, all right. I knew someone who worked at Arby's when I was a teenager, early 20-ish, and their description of the food when it came out of the freezer made me not really want to eat Arby's mm. anymore because it wasn't really, it didn't sound like food. It sounded like chemical mm. blocks. Yeah, well, yeah, it could be. I've never seen it, so I don't know. Are you okay with we, we did broccoli? This. Oh, yeah <laughs> cauliflower i was gonna say we did <laughs> yeah yeah i like those those are good yeah. okay yeah. good see there we go i wanted to get brennan okay. involved i didn't want to feel like we weren't involved here. okay involved. back to burgers <laughs> back to talking. burgers getting you excited anyway um uh the whopper is a top contender for the best fast food burger no doubt uh but like every other burger in the world it does look different in person compared to the ads we see on tv and billboards somehow they make them perfect a group is taking offense to this fact that they don't quite look the same, and is trying to sue Burger King for false advertising. And of course, they're from Florida. I don't know how things work in Florida, which from your description sounds like a colorful, lawless swamp. So here's the story from Yahoo Finance about the lawsuit against Burger King. So this is a group of plaintiffs who filed suit on Thursday in federal district court in Florida. They want this lawsuit to be a class action on behalf of all of the people who bought burgers uh, supposedly under these false representations. Now, the plaintiffs say that Burger King is falsely advertising the size and the amount of the ingredients of its burgers. Plus, they say nearly every item in its ads, they say that the ads amount to what are unfair and deceptive trade practices. And in their complaint, they write that Burger King advertises its burgers as large burgers compared to competitors and containing oversized meat patties and ingredients that overflow over the bun to make it appear that the burgers are 35% larger in size and contain more than double the meat than the actual burger. Now, the plaintiffs say that Burger King began this uh, materially overstating the size of its burgers back in 2017. Wow. Hmm. Men have been doing it for decades, centuries. Um, uh-huh. So the lawsuit does have some interesting points. It claims the issue has more importance given the highest inflation in 40 years and the pressures on consumer budgets. The issue is, quote, especially concerning now that inflation, food and meat prices are very high and many consumers, especially lower income consumers, are struggling financially, end quote, the lawsuit says. According to the BBC in 2010, the UK's advertising authority told Burger King that it misled viewers about the size of the chicken burger and told the chain to stop running the ad. Hmm. So but it's true, though. They make them look perfect, and they're not. Yep. And uh, they make them look like they're not sloppy, and they are. The Wendy's Portobello Bacon Mushroom Melt Burger is, in my opinion, the best burger of all the time. And I've tried to reproduce it at home. I can't. I don't know what they put into it. It's amazing, and it's sloppy and messy and awesome. So, But I, I if 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 the size thing... 
is not congruent from the ad to the store, then yeah, that's a problem. I'd say it's a fair ball. Yeah, I agree. Like the look is fine. I mean, we were used to that. I mean, for the commercials, they literally put like metal rods inside the burgers to prop it up. That's one thing. But if they're advertising it as it's the size of your fist, but it's actually the size of a coin, then I would be upset about that. Right. So that that makes I I get that. Yeah. Are you okay with awesome Canadians? Incredibly awesome Canadians. Incredibly awesome Canadians on Jeopardy. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. It's like we're meant to be on that show. Have you noticed that? Yes. It's like it's it's like kind of there must be a Canadian present on Jeopardy for it to truly be Jeopardy. It should be a rule. One competitor from Canada every week. I think so. Well, this is some good news. And an amazing young person, too. For the fourth night in a row, Matea Roach once again did her home province proud by earning herself another big win on Jeopardy on Friday. Ms. Roach, a 23-year-old originally from Halifax, handily beat her two opponents and won $24,200 American, American, 23 years old and crushing it on Jeopardy. How Big as her brain. That's amazing. Bringing her total winnings to over four days and $104,600 US, about 131,000 Canadians. The morning show sat down with her last week right after her third win. Congrats so far. <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much. Oh my God. Thank gosh. you so much. We are all cheering you on, loving this run. You don't even seem nervous. Were you nervous playing? <laughs> Honestly, I was much more nervous before I actually had to play the games than I was when I was playing the games. I think that when I was actually up on stage and I was ringing in and answering uh, the clues, at that point I was in the zone. Like I was totally focused on what I had to do and I wasn't really thinking about the nerves uh, at all. I was waiting around before actually taping that I found really nerve wracking. Speaking of taping, you taped this back in January. How tough was it to keep this a secret from your family and friends? (laughs) So I was very lucky in that I didn't have to keep it a secret from absolutely everybody. So before COVID, you would have been allowed to bring some family and friends down to watch your taping. And so obviously anybody in the studio audience would know the result of your game or your games. And they would have to keep it a secret as well, of course, until it airs. Uh, So the rule that they gave us was, well, if someone would have been in the audience, if you'd been allowed to bring them, you can tell those people. So I was able to tell my parents and a couple of my closest friends. So they were kind of there to support me and look knowingly, you know, when people asked me, what have you been up to the past couple months? And I had to be like, absolutely nothing. (laughs) At least a couple of people knew that that was Sourdough bread, just making sourdough bread, right? (laughs) Yeah. That's what we all say. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Matea, how happy were you to see a question about Nova Scotia come up during that double Jeopardy round? Oh, my gosh. Um, I was so thrilled, especially because I'm introduced as being from Toronto on the show because that's where I live now and lived for the past six and a half years. Um, But I knew that there'd be a lot of folks at home that wouldn't be too pleased with me if I didn't get in a reference to being from Nova Scotia. And so... When there was actually a clue that mentioned Nova Scotia, that was just a gimme. I knew I had to absolutely ring in and respond to that clue. That's amazing. Listen, have you and your family always been fans of the show? And and what prompted you to apply? 
Yeah, so I've definitely watched Jeopardy ever since I was a kid. Um, when I was really, really young, one of my favorite shows was Wheel of Fortune, which is the sister program to Jeopardy and typically airs either right before or right after. Uh, and so I would have been watching Jeopardy, I think, from when I was pretty young, uh, just because it would be on right away uh, after watching Wheel. Um, so I don't watch every day, typically. Well, now I do, now that I'm on and when I was preparing to go, for sure. <laughs> um, but in terms of what prompted me to apply... Uh, I applied during the pandemic. I was, uh, like many people my age, spending a bit more time at my parents' house than I had really expected to. Uh, and I was bored. And uh, I thought, <laughs> you know what, why not shoot my shot? Like, the worst thing that happens is I don't hear back. And the best thing that happens is maybe I get on the show. So there's literally no downside to taking the test. Um, and then I got the best possible outcome. <laughs> So that's conversation with Matea Roach from The Morning Show, sitting down talking about her third win on Jeopardy. Question, do you think you would even get one question right, truly, if you were on Jeopardy? I don't think I would. I don't think I would. I think I could get one. If, if it's like a pop culture-y reference, uh, yeah, definitely I could get if one. It's about but Lego anything- or sneakers, you're good. Video games, they're get, they're trying to get hip, you know? They're trying to get the young audience watching. There was a Among Us question the other night on, on Jeopardy, really? which is that video game that blew up that everybody was playing. So Turning I think I could movie, probably get one. It? That's the movie? Uh, they're making the movie? Maybe. Probably, yeah, I honestly. So. I think that's what I'm making win? the movie. They're, no. they're shooting it here in Calgary, I think. Well, no, you're thinking of The Last of Us, not Among Us. Okay. <laughs> too many us's. <laughs> I don't know. It's too many us's. This is dumb. It's okay. There's, okay. This is us and the one of us and the among us and the last of us and the. See, can these people come up with more creative names, please? That would be awesome. This is the Shift Podcast. In a couple of conversations that I have with some friends of mine, um, my buddy Pat. Uh, for example, Pat is a farmer and uh, does some cattle and stuff. As well. Then there's Tony, Tony's multi generation uh, farming family. And in those conversations with those guys, we sort of chatted about the, the case of the scenarios for them coming into the fall, into the spring. Are you ready? Are you ready for what's coming? And, uh, you know, calving season and then into, you know, planting and all the things that come with it. I've learned a lot about erosion and agriculture and all the things. The thing that everybody said was cost of diesel was going to be a problem. The other problem was going to be fertilizer. If you can, which I thought, okay, fertilizer is expensive. That's really what I was told. Fertilizer is expensive. But then a couple of the guys said, if you can even get some. So this is where uh, Josh Nasalski uh, from plant uh, with plant agriculture, fertilizer dude. Uh, is that a, is that a compliment? I think it's a compliment, fertilizer dude. Yeah, sure. In in your internal monologue, Shane, you can call me fertilizer dude. That's that's there cool. we go. See, the fertilizer dudes here. Uh, assistant professor, uh, University of Guelph, and that's what you do. You do the fertilizer. You that's that's your thing. You do like crops and cropping systems. All of that connects with fertilizer. Uh, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, it helps us a ton. Yeah, happy to be here, Shane. Thanks. Great. So um, I guess let's start with the question that was brought to me by uh, these friends of mine. Fertilizer uh, is the big problem, even if you can get it. Is that legit? That is legit. Uh, Depends, you know, what nutrient, what fertilizer exactly you're talking to, uh, speaking about. But the price has doubled or tripled since the start of the pandemic. But the question is, if you can get it. So there's, um, I mean, there's 
logistic and supply chain issues, uh, like for for many different products, not just fertilizer. But what's or unique about fertilizer, especially nitrogen fertilizer, which is used, especially like whatever your barley's, your wheats, your canolas, basically anything aside from your pulses is going to get nitrogen fertilizer. Um, the cost of natural gas has gone up so high that fertilizer factories have have shut down because just the cost of buying that natural gas is so expensive. Like not, we're not talking about transport. We're not talking about you know the markup that the retailer gets. Just the cost of the natural gas is so expensive that the you just stop you just stop producing uh, nitrogen urea. Well, urea, that's the, uh, that's the big one too. Um, that seems to be such an important ingredient. So I don't know these ingredients. I do know that, uh, it seems like we've been kind of lucky, uh, with the cost of natural gas over the last little while, cause it has been particularly low. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about some of the essential ingredients that go into th- some of the fertilizers. Cause I am so far out of my lane here. I can't even pretend to know what it is. Um, can you help us understand some of the common things like natural gas? How do these things come together and what are the sort of the hinge points that are involved? I guess the, um, the ingredients that we would know as, as common people. Sure. So like I mentioned with nitrogen, you got natural gas because uh, the nitrogen that's in urea is actually in the air, right? The air that we're breathing, 70% of it's nitrogen. Uh, but there's a, um, a chemical reaction called the Haber-Bosch process that uses natural gas and essentially um, uh, synthesizes ammonia from the air. So it takes that nitrogen that's unavailable and makes it into a liquid form that we can use. And then it's subsequently processed into the fertilizer you know and see if you go to the garden center or, or a farmer would know. Um, so, so that is synthesized from the air. But then we have many other kinds of fertilizers that uh, are essentially mined so we have a phosphorus fertilizer that's mined. There's a big mine in Florida. Uh, there's mines in Morocco, and and that 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 is essentially mined and, and uses phosphorus fertilizers. Again, it's it's processed, but it's essentially mined. Then we have potash, which is uh, um, potassium, and again, that is also mined. And that's actually what Canada's, or at least Western Canada, especially, is is quite famous for producing. Uh, the big potash mines you have out west and very rich soils. I mean, the mines are underground, but the soils themselves that farmers are are uh, cultivating are quite high in potassium naturally. Not not everyone's so lucky. So does that mean that um, with potash, does that help us in Western Canada? I mean, if we're able to pull it out of the ground, Saskatchewan is such a great example. You can drive uh, long periods of time on very straight pothill, uh, pothole filled roads in Saskatchewan through uh, potash mines and tailings and all those things. So um, does that help us or does that stuff go somewhere else? Do we need something different? Certainly if you're, I mean, look, if you're in the commodity commodity market, I I would assume uh, that you're benefiting from these high prices. I'm I'm certainly no expert in in fertilizer retailing or or the economics of that market. But the issue is that, uh, you know, things are going well in Canada, right? In terms of potash mining, you mentioned low natural gas prices, but other places that make these fertilizers are not having such a good go of it. And so it's a world market. So for example, the price of natural gas goes up in Europe, the fertilizer factory shut down there, or if mines in, uh, you can say Eastern Europe, potash mines there, uh, there's, let's say tariffs or trade barriers pushing the price up. Well, that's again, we're in a world market that that's going to feed back here to to Canada. 
So when we look at Russia, of course, now there are a lot of countries that have said no to uh, oil and gas. There are some countries that have said, uh, we'll take it at a discount. Are there any fertilizing producing countries that are affected by the current international political uh, political climate? Um, Has that had an impact as well? Or is it just the natural gas in general? No, this is some hidden country like Turkey or something that is a a fertilizer mecca that we didn't know about. It's a good question. You know, the big players in uh, the fertilizer markets, well, it depends what you're talking about. Nitrogen, it's essentially the the people that have lots of cheap energy. So, like, you would think of, uh, you know, Norway might not be the first thing you think of when you think of, uh, like, farming, big Mm. big agriculture, but they have like major uh, fertilizer production really? in, in Norway. Yeah, because they have uh, oil. They, mm. have, uh, they, have, they have cheap energy and hydro, uh, hydroelectric. Um, there's big mines, I believe, I believe in Belarus is a major exporter mm-hmm. of potash. And uh, I'm sure, uh, and as well as Russia. Russia yeah. is a huge player. Now, Russia, now, does Russia do the natural, because I know they obviously export natural gas. I heard, and this yeah. is only just conversation, that Russia, is a, is Russia a big producer of fertilizer itself or just the ingredients? Do you know? They're, they're okay, so they're, they're a big producer of fertilizers and the ingredients for fertilizers. Okay. Um, when we're talking about shortages, like here in eastern, uh, let's say in eastern Canada, where I'm familiar with, but probably out west too, we're probably thinking about like, uh, fertilizers that are, are subsequently processed. Like it's not, it, it, they're a bit more refined. Mm-hmm. So urea is kind of maybe a basic fertilizer, but you can get much more advanced forms of that nitrogen that are uh, just, tre- um, they have other ingredients added to them that make them more efficient or have other nutrients added. And that's a, more of a supply chain issue that has nothing to do with what's going on, like say in Russia. That's good. But when you just think of the like raw ingredient prices. Yeah. I'm assuming that what's going on in Russia would have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's great. And I love that. I love that uh, you acknowledge that, you know, we're not talking market economics here, but just trying to understand where the stuff comes from. Um, Like, so when you look, when you say that there's different versions of, of fertilizers, is that what I see when I'm driving down the road? And sometimes you see a hay bale that's been wrapped in plastic of some fertilizer company saying, you know, used here, or there's, you see the stakes in the side of the road with different fertilizers, you know, whether they're testing or marketing their product, stuff like that. Is that what you mean when they different companies are trying to manipulate formulas with these base ingredients to to make things grow better? Pretty, pretty much, Shane. I mean, look, it's a commodity at the end of the day, but people are differentiating what they're selling. So, you know, you can think of nitrogen urea, which is kind of a prill. Um, you can think of nitrogen in a liquid form, which has different use cases on the farm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can you can apply it close to the seed in a band uh, so, so as a starter. Um, you can have what's called, like, I mean, your potassium, your potash can be K-mag, which has, again, more nutrients added to it, which is a bit more expensive than just your regular old, so to speak, fertilizer. So, yeah, you can, you can there's people that differentiate themselves in, in that way. You can get really technical, too. So there's one company, this is what they say, I mean, I've just read their marketing materials, but what they say is our fertilizer prills, like the little kind of granules, are specially formulated just the way that they're physically made. That um, when a fertil- when a farmer's spreading fertilizer, you get a much more even spread. Hmm. So 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 that that's really important because if you have if you're buying using fertilizer that has really really big granules and really really small granules, 
when you're spreading that fertilizer on a field, if you have a lot of he- most of its heavy granules, it won't spread evenly, right? It'll it'll drop down. Some will go really far, and then you come back, and you, it's very hard to manage a field where you have these strips of like over fertilized strips with under fertilized strips. So yeah, there's. I mean, that's, I'm, a, I'm that's amazing. I, I had no idea about like that. I mean, it makes total sense in hindsight, but I had no idea that how you how they market the granules to fly through the air evenly would be a, even a thing. But in hindsight, it makes makes total sense because, I mean, if you have overlap, A, you, that can kill stuff, or it's just wasteful for cost and um, or inconsistent for product growth. So I guess it I guess it does make sense, but I would have had no idea. If you had said to me, you know, take a wild guess of what some of the most important things are in marketing fertilizers. I would never have said flight path. <laughs> you know, oh, uh, that's cool. Um, so golf courses, I'm assuming everybody's going to be affected by these these costs in fertilizer going up because golf courses use tons of it. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, you know, I worked on a golf course when I was young, but I haven't played in, in, in a very long time. Yeah. Uh, so I, I can't speak I to that, it. but... But, but they do use quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I love it. And this is um, and what about what are we going to see at retail? Is it going to impact us as the the home gardeners? Are we like that magnitude where we go to the garden store and it's going to cost a lot? I mean, not economics, but I mean, just in this sort of demand for fertilizer world, because I don't think we understand how it flows to the places. It's just something that's in a bag. That's what we see. Yeah, I don't think it's going to really affect availability at like your Canadian Tire if that's what you're asking. Yeah. Just because the volumes we're talking about are just literally like orders and orders of magnitude. I mean, mm-hmm. a, a really serious gardener might use a hundred pounds of fertilizer, let's just say, mm-hmm. but a farmer on a single acre in Eastern Canada, I would say kind of at a low end is going to use 500, 500 kilos, like, wow. like 700 pounds, like trucks, you know, and trucks. when you, when you add, yeah. So it's, it, it adds up a lot when you're talking about farm versus, you know, garden, the other issue, Shane, and I should have mentioned this earlier is a lot of the garden fertilizers are water soluble they're meant to be dissolved or really easily dissolved and that makes them a little bit more expensive mm. but the types of fer- like per pound obviously um but the types of or the types of fertilizer that you would use on a farm versus like home garden or even a greenhouse where you're fertigating is it it's somewhat it's a different it's different mm-hmm. uh, that's fascinating I think it's so fascinating. Uh, Josh, what's your favorite thing? I mean, you've, you've taken into um, this conversation around fertilizer. I mean, this is your world. Um, why fertilizer? Why is it so interesting to you? Why, why are you curious about it in general? Uh, from, is, it like, is it chemistry? Is it um, you know, the marketability of it, the uses and how it works? Like, what is it for you that makes, that makes fertilizer interesting? Uh, for me, I, uh, well, I, I lived in Cambodia for two years, uh, one of the poorest countries in the world, one of the most rural countries in the world. And this was before I got into, uh, you know, agricultural research. And I spent a lot of time in the countryside and uh, I would see real like that was my first experience with real poverty, like real hunger, like just real deprivation. I mean, the, the they they handled it with a lot of dignity, the people of Cambodia, the Khmer people. But it was just very intense being from Canada and seeing all that. And I. Uh, I mean, what is how does fertilizer play into this? Um, you know, the the, uh, the issue was their agricultural productivity. You know, as hard as the farmers worked, and they worked very hard, just as hard as any anyone else, but they just couldn't get the the yields. They couldn't get the grain, and they ate everything they produced. I mean, they would sell very little. It was basically the rice they grew. Um, you know, that's what they would eat if they had a, a 
a pig or two, that's what they would eat. And uh, they, there was no fertilizer there. And uh, I was involved in a project that brought some fertilizer, like a very small amount. I'm talking about a single bag of fertilizer to a farm that, you know, these farms were maybe one or two acres. And it just, you just saw how big of a difference it made. Like, like fertilizers are a miracle. The guy that invented um, uh, nitrogen fertilizer in 1911, he won the Nobel Prize for, for his discovery because, and, and, and you just think of the human population. I mean, before the invention of nitrogen fertilizer, the discovery of the Haber-Busch process, there was maybe 2 billion people alive on the planet. And now, right, in whatever, less than 100 years, or over, sorry, just over 100 years. Yeah, right? tripled. So, yeah. yeah, so. That's amazing. Very important. And yeah. I'm, I'm guessing inside fertilizer, obviously, the conversation of conservation is so important. It's one of the things that I've learned uh, so much mm -hmm. from Spencer, which is um, how they, you know, they don't plow the same way because they don't want the wind to blow and erosion and all the things. Mm -hmm. Conservation, like, I, I, I thought that, yeah, okay, farmers cared about taking care of the, of the dirt. Oh no, it's number one on the top of their list. Every single farmer I talk to is their number one. I mean, I always thought they were amazing business people, but these people, they know that the soil, the fruit of the, the ground is everything to them and taking care of the soil and everything around it is their number one hands down. So, I mean, that conversation around conservation, um, you know, reckless use of chemicals, too much, how much is the good balance for the future of the soil? All of that must play into this in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, farmers uh, are stewards of their land. They have the biggest incentive to be stewards of their land because if, if their soil blows away, I mean, that's their, that's their crop productivity. That's, that's money really leaving the field. And uh, so, so absolutely. Um, conservation of, especially using fertilizers just more efficiently is a, is a, huge way farmers are adapting to high fertilizer prices. That's really what I study, how to use fertilizers more efficient. And this year, especially farmers are incredibly receptive to, to, to doing that. Um, what are some I mean, of the ways that you're seeing that they're doing it, that you can share with us that impress you? So uh, the, a couple of things in terms of being better steward, uh, using fertilizer more efficiently. One would be of just using less of it. So farmers can, can, can dial down the amount of fertilizer they're using. Research we've done in Ontario with corn shows that, you know, you can reduce your fertilizer by whatever, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, given the high price, 30 pounds an acre, and uh, still be, still be, still maintain that level of, of yield. Hmm. But other, other things, um, I mean, that might not be relevant to Western Canada. I don't know how much corn's grown there. Um, but another one is better mapping of, of the nutrient needs of, of, the, of those crops. And that would be, you know, not treating a, a hundred acre, a thousand acre field, each acre the same, but just mapping out, you know, what's an area where I can cut back that, that the soil is quite fertile, it's really rich. What's an area of the soil that, you know, I really need to, to pay more attention to an area of that field that I should fertilize a bit more. So you can map that with satellites nowadays. You can map that with drones. You can just do a soil testing. There's all these different technologies, and this year especially, farmers have become more interested in, 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 in for example, soil testing to better figure out, okay, what, what parts of the field need it and what parts of the field don't in terms of the fertilizer investment. That's fascinating. Um, absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I've always been impressed by farmers because not only um, – I don't know if you watch hockey, but there was a thing where one of the Calgary Flames got uh, – he, he bit his tongue. And they had to do like a stitch on his tongue. 
And oh, wow. um, Daryl Sutter, the coach of the Flames, is a farmer, and uh, he was, uh, was tongue in cheek, I suppose, complaining about the doctors how it took too long to stitch him up and get him back out there. He's like, he says, I can stitch up my cows and my horses in in you know ten minutes. And yep. um, and so I've always been impressed by farmers in general because farmers not only are veterinarians, they are mechanics on their equipment and they are business people. So the economics and the finance. And then on top of it, what I'm learning is they're, you know, almost, you know, scientists and chemists in their own right to make sure they've got all the parts right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you've got to wear a lot of hats. No if kidding. You're a farmer. It's um, it's really impressive, it's what, impressive. Uh, what, it, what it takes to run a run a farm business and be a farmer um you know we're lucky that you know we don't have to pay too much attention to it that farmers do a good job and so your average person can just not really know too much about what goes what goes on behind the scenes to just get like whatever a loaf of bread at the store right yeah well it certainly makes me feel more grateful though doesn't it oh yeah no absolutely um yeah staggering stuff yeah, no, I'm privileged to, to teach uh, lots of, of aspiring or farmers or aspiring farmers at the university. Um, a lot of them come through the Ontario Agriculture College. And so it's uh, it's always, I mean, these are people I always learn from because they have such tacit knowledge. I mean, you know, there's students who just, like I said, it's not it's not usual for a professor to learn from the students every year, but I certainly do. Yeah, I bet. learn a lot. Yeah. So, I bet you it's one of those times where... Um you spend a lot of time just listening to what the problems are, what their family's gone through, what they see as the future. I, I would imagine that farming is uh, on the cusp of massive shifts in usage technology and, and what's available. I know that some of the guys that I've talked to just even things, the use of mega high quality drones, uh, not the mm-hmm. ones we go buy at Best Buy, but mega high quality drones to be able to check on uh, cattle, to be able to check on crops, to be able to look for wind damage after a storm, all of those things, um, the adoption that they're going through. And these are the guys, you imagine these old guys with suspenders, right? on their tractor. And it's not like that anymore. Um, these guys are way further ahead than I think that the stereotype gives them credit for. No, no. Uh, I mean, farmers are quite innovative. The Canadian agriculture sector is highly innovative. And that's why, you know, it's these high fertilizer prices. They're an issue, certainly, but farmers are adapting and they're innovating. And, and uh, you know, what I see is people mean the challenge in creative ways, many different ways. So oh, it's a beautiful statement. No, no, each farmer is doing it differently based on their management style, their personal preferences. Um, you know, another thing I didn't mention earlier, but it's kind of interesting is some farmers are really looking to cover crops that can fix nitrogen, not to lower this year's fertilizer bill, but they're going to plant it at some point to lower next year's fertilizer nitrogen bill. Mm-hmm. So there's actually like, for instance, uh, red clover is quite popular in here in uh, Eastern Ontario or Eastern Canada, I would say as a cover crop. And, uh, it's hard to get seed. I have a project on farm project where I think we only needed 80 acres worth of seed, but it was hard to find because I think other farmers are also looking, just trying to be creative. Hmm. Huh. Well, and that gets into that whole cycle of crops thing, which is a whole other conversation of amazing um, being able to know what you need this year, next year, how to hmm. m- maximize nutrients and all that stuff. It's fascinating. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Josh uh, Daselski, university of Guelph assistant professor, um, the uh, the fertilizer nerd, I guess. There you go. Thank you, Shane, and I'll I'll wear that badge with pride. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for being here, man. I really appreciate it. No problem. Cheers. This is the Shift Podcast. 
time to check in with our favorite millennial, Ryan O'Donnell. The millennial on the radio, it's Ryan O'Donnell. At shiftheads.ca, there's a post someone put up uh, that shows a man in bed with his Star Destroyer Lego kit and Mm -hmm. his wife sleeping on the floor. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was shared for Ryan and thought it was very accurate. It's the exact same set, and it's the exact same expression I would have on my face if I was laying next to it. Uh, You would need a king bed, though, to really, like, have enough room to sleep beside that thing in your bed. Uh, It is enormous. Not good for cuddles. Not good for cuddles. No, it's spiky and it's plastic. In fact, my roommate actually, uh, uh, it's currently on the floor because I'm waiting for my stand to arrive. And my mm-hmm. roommate was walking, and his foot grazed it, and it cut him. It, 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 oh. It's just, yeah. So it is as dangerous as it is beautiful. There you go. <laughs> it's a very large Lego set if you have no idea what we're talking about. $900. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of money. Uh, well, uh, you know who makes a lot of money is Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson is a fascinating individual. I did not grow up watching him box, but I grew up knowing knowing who he was. I knew that he was the controversial, uh, you know, boxer. He uh, had the ear biting thing happen, and then I'd say my first major exposure to him was when he did the drum solo in The Hangover. Uh, now, the interesting thing about Mike is that he's had many business ventures for a while. I think he's he was actually ahead of the curve a lot in terms of former athletes jumping into different industries. He had his own bizarre surrealist uh, animation show on Netflix. Uh, he also has his own weed business, which is absolutely booming or lit, you could say. <laughs> oh. And as we mentioned a few weeks ago, his cannabis company has, uh, you know, it started in some new strains. And this is him talking about the first time he ever tried pot. I'm a little kid, I'm making a lot of noise, my mother friends, they don't take a hit, I fall asleep, I wake up, hey, what was that stuff? I, like, I can barely understand what he says. I'm pretty sure he was trying the pot at the time. <laughs> yes, well he was, that YouTube channel is literally called Mike Tyson Tries Strains. It is literally a YouTube channel of him sitting in a chair trying different strains of marijuana. Which nice. That's fine. It's legal where he lives, and it's becoming increasingly legal across the United States. And uh, well, it's fine, but some of us would really appreciate a consonant so we can understand what he said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know he's always gonna kind of talk like that. You know, he's got like the his mouth doesn't open very much, right? So his his words don't get a lot of consonant attention do they but it's i love his voice it's amazing and i like i i he's a weird guy but i mean he's pulling in massive amounts of money including he got a lot of attention for his most recent edibles uh product we talked about a couple weeks ago it's uh edible gummies uh, and they're in the shape of an ear with a bite taken out of it in reference to the uh, bite of uh, Evander Holyfield, yeah, back in 1997. Here's the thing, though. This is a fascinating law. He cannot sell those edibles in Colorado and Colorado alone. Not because weed is illegal there. It is legal there. 
is one of the first in the States. The reason he can't sell those edibles there is that the ear shaped edibles uh, conflict with a law that prohibits marijuana edibles from being shaped like humans, animals, fruit, or other images that could attract children. How many kids want to eat ears? So that that's the thing. That's the thing. Like a gummy of like a person, I can understand, but never aside from maybe Halloween have I ever thought, you know what I would love to eat is a gummy ear. Gummy cheeseburger? Yep, absolutely. Gummy worm? Sure, you got it. This is I can tough get business thing. for the stag ed industry, though. It, there you go. See, I wonder. Actually, yeah, you couldn't make uh, erotic gummies in mm-hmm. in Colorado. So he plans to quote modify the shape from a bitten ear to the letter T. So. A little bit boring, but I mean, I guess it works. Why? Oh, I guess Tyson. Okay. Tyson. Yeah. Uh, one thing that surprised me, he's actually been in the pot industry since 2016 and earns more about $700,000 US a month from it. I thought he was broke at one point. I think he had no choice. I thought he was too, but there you go. Getting into the business helped him out a little bit there. Here's a comeback story for you. $700,000. What's that? Sorry about a comeback story for you right there. He was oh, come back stories here on the shift. He was broke and now he's a got That's a lot. Good. Yeah. That's good for him. I mean, I still would love to be able to understand what he says. I I know, me too. Like a little Mike tra- Mike Tyson's translator service. Like a little thing you could have in your home. And you'd be like, oh but what, what it's like yeah, you'd have to it's like a a Mike Tyson version of Alexa that could that could translate for you. Just call There's it Tyson. A million dollar idea, Ryan. You could do it. Hey Tyson. What the hell did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I would buy that online. I buy lots of stuff online. Sure you would. We all do. I mean, for do double like the price because you got a free <laughs> chance to spend money. Yes. Congratulations. Yes. I have some unhealthy spending habits that, that is well documented. Although I do check the reviews. I do check reviews. I like that. But have you ever yeah, seen man, a product? The, the reviews that have been put there by the guy selling it saying, it's worth twice this much. I'll pay twice this much then. Yes. Well, that's kind of what the story is about. Because have you ever seen a product, you, you look at it, you're considering buying it, but you're not sure. So you take the next step and you look at the reviews. And the reviews are a little weird. You know, like it's for a headphone adapter. And it says, this product changed my life. This product is the greatest thing Insignia has ever made. It is a revolution. You go, that's a bit much. Well, you know, there's some red flags because there are so many fake reviews out there. A ridiculous amount. And on everything. I mean, Amazon, is a there's a plague of them there. But anything from local businesses to big box, you name it, fake reviews are becoming as... Uh, prevalent as fake products and and uh in general so there are some red flags some tips i'm going to give you if you are thinking about buying something and you see a review that has let's say the profile picture is a default you know that gray outline of a of a person like a silhouette and the username is like john 43z underscore 22 probably fake Probably fake. Uh, Consumer Matters reporter Andrea over at the Globals, uh, she t- took a deeper look 
at some of the ways to spot the fake reviews when buying goods or even services online. First, be suspicious of five stars. When the company has only five-star reviews, be cautious. Every business, no matter how good, likely will have a few negative reviews. Beware of comments like, it's the best ever, or it's the worst ever. Don't trust over-the-top reviews, especially if the writer doesn't offer details on why it's great or terrible. Remember, bad reviews could be fake takes from a competitor. Yes, exactly, right? Well, let's insert that there have been major uh, companies in Canada have been caught in 2015. Uh, having their staff post reviews on their own websites about things. Uh, you can Google it. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus because mm-hmm. it was seven years ago. But you can take a look. I mean, they're not the only ones that, uh, that were caught doing it, setting out those fake reviews. And did you know, Ryan, there's actually software you can get. So if somebody, if you do an email invite, review this product or click here to review this product, if you click on like one, two, or three stars it sends you to a capture page that asks you, you know, what's your review of the product? Let us know, da-da-da-da-da. It doesn't actually send you to the rating process on the app or the program. If you do four or five, then it sends you to the app. So if you go one, two, or three stars, it interrupts you and sends you to a feedback form. It doesn't actually let you post one, two, and three-star ratings on invite. You have directly, to go there. Yeah. You would you'd have to go to your app store or the website directly and click one, two, three stars, whatever. And in this particular case, um, the cases you can just pay, and anything that's one, two, or three stars goes to an email form that sends it to the management or the the marketing people, so they get the feedback. Never makes it online, so you have to watch for that too. If it sends you to a new website to do the review, the review possibly could be going to the company, but then if you get four or five stars, it'll send you to the app store. So the secret is, if that's the case, on your invite, like the email or whatever, hey, review us, click four or five stars. It'll take you to that place. Then do your honest review. Hmm. It's, a gr- it's great advice. And it, it, I think this erodes trust quite a bit. I understand, like if I was running a business, let's say I started my own sneaker business, and uh, I saw like a one-star review, I would want to hide it instinctually. But I also, like... You, if you wear it like a badge, you can show growth. And I actually, I went on Best Buy's website. I'm not accusing Best Buy of anything, but I saw reviews for a simple product I was looking for, like 10 bucks, and they were all over the place. It, you know, it was displayed as four stars, but when you read the reviews, they were very negative. And I was trying to figure out where are the high reviews coming from. I couldn't find them. So I check other products. It's all over the place. So what I did was I just went to the store. <laughs> and I tried them. <laughs> I just looked it mm-hmm. up. And this is, I think that's one of the things, one of the advantages of in-person shopping that will never go away is you can right. get your hands on it without having that's to it. trust a potentially sketchy review. And I'm not saying they're all sketchy reviews. I personally love leaving reviews on Google. I keep it to two sentences, attach a picture, and it's fine. Straighten to the point. And that, I feel like, is a bit more legit sometimes than a full paragraph uh of what feels like curated content keep in mind best buy walmart are open marketplaces anybody can sell anything on those and so um some of them you can't get in the store on so that that's a thing um Mm -hmm. there are robots that do it and um you have to look at at the incentives too because even on amazon they're not allowed to do it but they'll send you a gift card 
an Amazon gift card to review their product, yeah. right? So they're not allowed to do that, but they do it. And people take it, and then they just leave us a positive review, and after they confirm your positive review, they send you a gift card. And um, there was a, um, a hotel I was looking at. I, think, I believe it was in Abbotsford when I was going to Abbotsford last year. And in the reviews of the hotel, there was a bunch of really bad star ratings for cleanliness and management, staff being not nice, everything else, until about seven or eight months before the time where I was looking. All of a sudden, after seven or eight months... Every review mentioned the um, mentioned the manager. Oh, the manager, I don't remember his name. Call him Steve. The manager, Steve, is such a great guy. He treated us so well. Steve was amazing. Steve was so great. You know, had a question about this, and Steve had the answer. And every review included the manager's name at that point. And so it was obvious that there was an incentive to post those reviews. There was an incentive mm-hmm. of some sort to post reviews. It became very obvious I always look at the replies from the managers. If someone yep. posts a negative response, what does the reply look like? And um, and so that that's how I judge is how do they try to solve the problems, not what are the problems? Because people yeah, are, some people it? will go in and they'll complain about anything, right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People will find something to complain with with everything. But I think the, the best lesson is trust your gut. If you see a review or you see a product that you're not certain about and the reviews don't make you feel any more confident in that purchase, move on. That's my biggest piece of advice. So you don't want to get burned, especially now. Everything's so stupid expensive. Um, just trust your gut. And sometimes your gut's going to give you some good advice. But do you know? check the boxes. Check for those ridiculous usernames, the fake profile pictures, uh, patterns in the review. Uh, you'll find it. They can't hide everything. There are there are patterns here that you can see and can mm-hmm. hopefully uh, protect you from uh, getting you know short end of the stick. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show, and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.